Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast, and we are so glad you're here. Our church meets at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person, or you can catch our gatherings after the fact on our YouTube channel. We would love to hear from you. In 2022, we are studying the Bible together through the lens of our theme, Life is a Garden. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to the third Sunday gathering in 2022 and our third week in our sermon series, Life is a Garden. This year, we're going through the Bible and seeing how it speaks words of life into our lives and how often those words are couched in metaphor that relate to gardens. We began our journey a couple weeks ago in Genesis chapter 1, where we find the world in a state that is not fit for humans to survive, an unordered and uninhabited wasteland, darkness, and chaotic waters. But the first manifest presence we see of God is His Spirit hovering over these chaotic deep waters, and simply his presence changes them into what will be life-giving waters. Last week, we read through the rest of the chapter, seeing how these obstacles of darkness and chaos waters and barren wasteland are overcome by a God who doesn't even have to lift a finger to fight them. Simply by his word, he invites creation into order and into filling what was once desolate. We saw God as a royal artist, summoning creation to be what it's capable of being. We looked at how the days of creation are structured so that the places God brings order, he also brings life and creatures. Today, what I want to do is zoom into chapter 1 onto day 6 and the creation of humanity and what Genesis 1 says to us today about who we are. And just like last week, I created a handout, which you can download on our website at newgarden.church 2022. The handout puts all of the scripture from Genesis 1 in one place so it's easier to see. And the slides from today will also be available to download on the website. So let's dive into day 6. Genesis 1 26 through 28. Now what you're seeing displayed, we're taking the verses and we're using color and formatting to indicate pairing relationships. This is similar to what we did last week in Genesis 1 with the pairing of days. So now within these three verses, you zoom in and there are relationships and pairing between the different parts. So it starts with a speech from God then a short three-line poem describing an action of God, and then moves back to another speech from God. So two speeches with an action sandwiched in the middle. So let's read it. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, there's a lot going on here, but first, 
Let's notice how the three movements relate to one another. In both, you have it end with a list indicated in red, and that portrays their responsibility to rule. And before each list, there's another element that sets them up to rule. The top has to do with their nature or function. They are the image and the likeness. And then verse 28 gives us another aspect of their ruling in that they will multiply. And the link between these is this three-line poem in the center. The first two lines of the poem use the language of the opening verse in 26. And then the third line of the poem breaks out an important aspect of the image in that it is male and female, which is then picked up with the being fruitful and multiplying. So these three verses have this really neat organization in how they work together, and they introduce us to some key concepts that will be really important for the rest of the story of the Bible, namely, what is the role of humans in the world? What is the relationship between male and female and God? And what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Now, while each of these questions could be a series of lessons by themselves, I would like to eventually make it out of chapter 1 and into the rest of the Bible. So we'll try and cover a little bit on all of these in one lesson today. First, let's zoom in on that three-line poem in the middle. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God creates man or human in his image. The word translated man here is the Hebrew word Adam. Adam is where we get the name Adam, but it can also be translated as man, as in a single human being, and it can be translated as man or mankind or human or humanity when it refers to the species of human. Now, I found it most helpful in my own life to use the word human or humanity since the word man in my world seems to refer to like a single male human. So God is creating human, the species, in the first line. And then the second line just takes the words of the first line and puts them in a different order to prepare us for this parallel statement in the third line, which will match the word order of the second line. And this is what Hebrew poetry does so often. What feels sometimes like needless repetition, but it's always strategic. Like you're looking at the same idea through many angles. Instead of summing it up in a logical statement like we are accustomed to doing in our own time and culture, they often just repeat it, but always with a little difference to help you think of it from a new perspective. So God creates the species of human. Now, first observation. Is the species of human one or many? It's one, singular, human. Second line, in the image of God, he created him, that is man or human. Again, the second line seems to say the same thing as the first, but it switches the word order so that we can then pair it with the third line. Because the third line introduces a deeper perspective of what human is, of what does human consist, of more than one, male and female, he created them, plural. So the fact that now, because of the word order switch, image is put in the parallel position as male and female, it's unpacking one key aspect of the meaning of the image. This is how Hebrew poetry works, through repetition and through pairing between lines, so you can start making these connections. And then it goes on to explain that they will be fruitful and they will multiply. But in this one verse, we have a very important aspect of what humanity is in relation to its creator, a creature 
that is one and simultaneously more than one. It's a key part of what it means to be the image of God, a creature that is one and more than one. And the way that those two are one, ideally, or become one, is a really important part of how they image God. We hear this and it, it, we tuck it away because in the next chapter, we're going to hear something about a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two become one. So somehow the drama of the many becoming one so that they can image God is going to be a really important part of the story. Specifically, that the joining together of male and female, because when a male and a female are one humanity, what is that collective humanity called to do on both sides of the poem? On both sides of the poem, they're called to rule. The verbs are very clear. Let them rule, plural. So this singular humanity rules as a plurality, and it's that plurality in unity, ruling in partnership together, that's a key part of the image. So are you confused yet? Like every time I think about this relationship, it's like trying to explain the Trinity. Like I know there's something there to grasp, but it's difficult to really get a hold on. We're on the edge of a mystery. But I think this poem is trying to help us see that the gendered difference of two others who are distinct and yet they share similarities and they are capable of becoming one, that this is somehow a very potent image of the nature of this God who created them. And it's this God who calls humanity to join him in the work of taking creation to the next level. I appreciate what N.T. Wright has to say about it. He says, Genesis 1 and 2 describe to anyone with first century eyes the construction of the ultimate temple, the single heaven and earth reality, the one cosmos within which the twin realities of God's space and our space are held together in proper balance and mutual relation. The seven stages of creation are the seven stages of constructing a temple into which the builder will come to take up residence, to take his rest. Here is Zion, my resting place, says Israel's God in the Psalms. And within this temple, there is, of course, as the final element of construction, the image, the true image through which the rest of creation sees and worships the Creator, the true image through which the sovereign and loving Creator becomes present to, in, and with His creation, working out His purposes. Genesis 1 declares that the God who made the world is the heaven and earth God, the working through humans in the world God. Perhaps we could take the Greek and speak not just of an anthropic God, a God who was appropriately bodied forth in human life, but a deanthropic God, a God who desired to express himself perfectly by working through humans in the world. Now, what N.T. Wright says at a scholarly level can be difficult to grasp, but I appreciate what he's doing. He's describing God as the working through humans in the world God. And he kind of creates this word to describe this long phrase, the deanthropic God. Dia, coming from the Greek meaning through, and anthropos meaning human. So, through humans. He has designed the world the way it is because he desires to work through humans to accomplish things together. God rules and operates through humans. In this system, humanity is not simply the passive recipient of God's purposes for creation. We're not on the sidelines watching him do things, but we're summoned to be actively involved, and we are the very means by which his purposes are accomplished. 
In this, we learn something about God, that the God of the Bible is a God who delights in partnering with others so that their united wills discover a future together. And it's this idea that brings us to what it means to be the image of God. You see, the opening chapters of Genesis shook the ancient world with a bold claim. All humans are made in the image of God. That claim was, and still is, revolutionary. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What is Genesis trying to convey? Why is this such a powerful idea? When the ancient world, specifically the ancient Near East, to be made in the image of God wasn't a new concept, but the way the Bible applies it to all people was new. In the ancient Near East, the image of God was a depiction reserved only for two things, idols and kings. When Genesis uses the phrase image of God, it uses the Hebrew word selim for image. Now, you might be surprised to learn this, but selim is often translated as idol in our Bible. So you could translate it, let us make mankind as the idols of God. In the ancient Near East, an idol served a few purposes. First, idols were placed within a temple the place where the gods and the humans were connected. And the idol then functioned as a reflection and an embodiment of the god. It was not thought of as the actual deity. Rather, the idol was meant to be an image of the divine. The idol stood there as the mediating representation of the god's power and presence. Second, the image of God was also a title reserved for kings. These special chosen rulers were representations of the gods, ruling and reigning on their behalf. Kings were often so closely tied to the gods that they were considered divine themselves. This made the king special and separate from his people. So you can already see how the classes and the segregation of people would seep into an ideology where only certain people were considered image bearers of the divine. So if the kings and the idols were the image bearers of the gods by reflecting their image and ruling on their behalf, what does it mean when Genesis says all humans, not just idols or specific kings, are made in the image of God? Maybe you've heard someone speak about why and how humans were made in the image of God. Some of the classic answers include that humans have souls, we have minds, we have emotions, we have a creative capacity that are unique to the rest of creation. And while these are truly unique characteristics of humans, it does not explain why Genesis claims that we are all made in God's image. But when you look at the text, it tells us a different reason, a different story. In his book, God's Image, His Cosmic Temple and the High Priest, Crispin Fletcher Lewis states this, Humanity in the garden is an incarnation of God's heavenly presence and rule on earth. To appreciate the full force of this image of God in humanity theology, we must have in mind the role of idols in ancient Near Eastern religion, where an idol is set up to be the real presence of the God, because the God is really believed to inhabit the image. The image is the God. And its proper care and veneration guarantees the God's benefits and protection for the worshiping community. With this understanding of divine images assumed, Genesis 1 has a sharply focused theological anthropology. Humanity is to be the eyes, ears, mouth, being, and action of the Creator God within His creation. This point gives the biblical prohibition of idolatry its strongest possible rationale. For humans, to make an idol is foolish. 
because it fails to appreciate that according to the original order of creation, it is humanity that functions in relation to God as do the idols in relation to their gods. Genesis tells us that humans were created with a purpose, not just to be autonomously unique, but vocationally set apart. When God says he will make humans in his image, he has a purpose in mind, and he makes that clear. They're going to rule and reign and be fruitful. This ruling, reigning, and fruitfulness reflects the image of God. Later in Genesis 2, humans are placed in a garden, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, with a similar mandate as Genesis 1. But now they're also called to tend to the garden. Yahweh God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Now notice the language of purpose here. They're placed in the garden in order to care for it. So what does that mean? That image bearers of God are ones who rule, reign, and are fruitful and tend to the created potential around them. Well, it might be helpful to think about a new description for human purpose. We might best describe humans as priestly kings. Like kings, all humans are meant to rule and reign on God's behalf. We were called to submit to God's vision and definition of good and evil, something that humanity fails rather quickly in Genesis 3. But our ruling and reigning is a call to advance the creation. God created this amazing space and he decided to share it with humans in a co-partnered project. We were called to work together with God at making this creation as amazing as possible. Look at what the psalmist in Psalm 8 says while reflecting on Genesis 1. What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge over everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims in the ocean currents. This language of ruling and reigning, along with the thoughts of Israel's neighbors that the king was the image of God, reveals a mind-blowing concept that all humans are kings and queens. Now, this would have shocked the ancient Near Eastern world, and maybe it shocks you too. We are all royal, and along with our reigning responsibilities, we are meant to be priests. Not robe-wearing, pious priests, but caretakers of a sacred space. In the Old Testament, priests were assigned to uh, take intentional care of sacred spaces within the temple and the tabernacle. And just like them, the first chosen humans were placed within a sacred space in close communion with God. Their purpose was to take care of this garden, multiply, make more gardens, and creatively make them better. They were to take what God had given them and do something beautiful with it. Now, maybe this all sounds like a pipe dream, like the Genesis author is seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. But when you read Genesis 3 and onwards, you see our, our failure in living out our designed intention. We reject God's provision of what is good and not good. We hand over our image-bearing nature to other things, other idols like money and power and sex and success and other people. The idols that we give power to, whether physical or not, they rob us of our nature. So how can the overtly optimistic view of humanity in Genesis 1 and 2 be possible when we know what 
all the horrible things that we're capable of doing. Well, that's when Jesus steps on the scene. Jesus walked around speaking and teaching on the kingdom of God. In fact, that was easily his favorite topic. Jesus preached the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of God's new rule and reign in this rebellious world. His teaching focused on what living within this coming rule would look like. The last would be first. Loving the enemy would be a top priority. The unlikely would be blessed. Those who wanted to lead must serve. In his time on earth, Jesus demonstrated what true ruling and reigning looks like. As the king of kings, Jesus ruled very differently from other kings. In his establishment of the kingdom, Jesus invites humans into a new way, or actually the original way, of being human. When we follow the ways of Jesus' kingdom, we follow the path to true humanity. When Jesus entered the grave and defeated death three days later, he exited the tomb with a path to restoration. Through his resurrection, Jesus initiated the curse reversal of creation. The world that had been damaged by human failure is now being renewed to its original intention. In doing so, Jesus became the great priest, not just by his perfect sacrifice, but also by his restorative care of what humans were meant to tend to. His victory sets people free from the idols in our lives that we have given our image over to. No longer are we slaves to the things we were originally meant to rule over. Through him, all of creation is being brought into a new creation so that his followers can be the caretakers and the gardeners of the created potential. Now, when we get to the end of the story, we see a very similar beginning. Through Jesus' restorative work in the world, his followers are now described as priestly kings. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, so they will reign on earth, Revelation chapter 5. Just as humanity was called to reflect the love of God into the world and glory back to God, the broken pieces of the divine mirrors will be put back together. Revelation envisions the day that God's image restoration project is brought to completion. In the ending scene of the Bible, the human followers of Jesus are back in the garden. But now it's so much bigger. And they are there serving and reigning forever, just like Adam and Eve were to serve and rule and reign over creation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him, and they will reign forever and ever. The opening chapter of the Bible invites us to reimagine human life. Amidst our flaws and sinful actions, there is an invitation from Jesus to join a new way of living. You were made with a purpose. You were made to reflect someone who is infinite and limitless, which means there's plenty of uniqueness and creativity to go around. You were made to take what God has given you and do amazing things. And each week we go to a table that is meant to remind us of this. Our God, who loves humanity and wants to partner with humanity so much that he becomes human, to be human, to be the human we were meant to be so that we can be the humans we're called to be. So as we go to the table today, here are some questions for reflection. Think about what you have been given. What are you called to rule and reign over under God's provision? What are you called to tend to and take care of? A job, a child, a spouse, a friend? Are there things you have given your image-bearing nature over to? 
Are there idols that you are serving and letting rule over you? Do the things God has designed you to do in the world he's created. Rid your life of the idols that are not made in his image. Tend to the things that have been given to you, for you are made in the image of God, and your life is a garden. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week. 